Thanks, Pete, very much indeed. So, years 12 and 13 have to stay in. Hmm. Sarah couldn't have made it sound more like a punishment if she tried, could she? Really? Do you think? Hmm. Hmm. We're into... Um, uh, my name is Simon Harris, by the way. I'm one of the ministers here. You've got no idea who I am. And uh, we're kicking off a new series this morning uh, based on the life of Joseph. And uh, we're thinking about how Joseph's story, Joseph's whole life, in so many ways is a picture of the life that God calls us to. Joseph was born in, uh, in, in many ways in obscurity, he lived out in the country, and yet because God's hand was on him, he rose to a position of great influence. And the Bible repeatedly talks about the way that you and I as representatives of God, representatives of the king, are to exert kingdom or godly influence wherever he's placed us. So whether that be at school or at college or at work or in our neighborhood or amongst our social grouping or network, wherever it is, we're called to be people that exert influence. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of of the world. And so we're asking the question through these weeks as we look at the life of Joseph how did he move from that place of seeming obscurity? How did he move from that place where it, it would appear that his life will be relatively inconsequential to become such a significant person on the world stage? And if you don't know how the story ends up, let me tell you the end from the beginning. Are you one of those people that reads the last chapter of the book before you get there? Some of you are. Apparently, so my wife tells me, you're very intelligent if you do that. She loves to know the end before she fills in the middle. And there's something about this series where we need to understand the end in order for the impact of the middle to make real sense. So if you don't know the story, lots of things happen. And in the end, by God's leading, God's guidance, God's providence, Joseph becomes the most powerful man in the then known world except for Pharaoh, the top dog himself. And not only does Joseph become this most influential man, he becomes this influential man at just the right time, so that literally, the Bible says, thousands of lives are saved. So here is a, a young lad, he's about 17 years of age, year 13, 17 years of age, and he rises right through to be the, in the right place at the right time for God's kingdom purpose. Now, it wasn't going to be easy for him to get there. It wasn't going to be quick for him to get there. But that's the journey that we'll explore together because it illuminates my journey and your journey, your story and my story. How do we move from where we are now and step into places of greater influence for God's kingdom? It's a story that many of you will have known for many years that inspires. It's about theory, uh, sorry, about practice rather than about uh, theory. And it's about, I think, as we go through these weeks, seeing that Joseph's calling is our calling. And as he set his face 
to whatever God would do in him and through him in whatever circumstances. Joseph learned to trust God for the small and then not so small and then humongous things. So his influence began and continued to grow. You ready? Because we're going to do it, whether you're ready or not. This morning, I just want us to think about the backstory. There's always a backstory, isn't there? There's a backstory to your life. There's a backstory to mine. And uh, I want us to uh, uh, kind of peel back the veil on Joseph's backstory. Because it, it just, just in, in looking at where he came from, it builds, uh, I think, or I hope, great hope and uh, great um, confidence in our own walks and in our own journey. So, Abraham was Joseph's great-grandfather. You can't get much better stock than Abraham. Abraham was called by God to uh, become the father of many nations. It was through Abraham that God was beginning his work to eventually send Jesus and to win this world back through his death and resurrection. You'll remember that Abraham was married to Sarah and they couldn't have any kids. And God, just for a laugh, no wonder Sarah laughed, said, when you're a hundred, Sarah, you can have a baby. Now, everyone knows that's a bit of a a joke. But that's what happened. God was true to his word. And after years of promise, they gave birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah are Joseph's grandparents. But it's with Isaac and Rebekah that things began to go terribly wrong. They started well. Although they couldn't have children, Isaac had learned something from his father and prayed. And the Lord, the Bible says, opened up uh, Rebekah's womb and she conceived. And uh, she was expecting twins. And she gave birth to two uh, twin boys by the names of Esau and Jacob, Esau and Jacob. At that point, Isaac and Rebekah made a huge mistake that was to affect their family for several generations. A huge mistake that, as we'll see as the story unfolds, had massive implications on Joseph himself. What was the mistake? The mistake was simply this, parental favoritism began to split the family. The boys, Esau and Jacob, grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. So two boys, quite different, although they were twins, and then it says these terrible words in so many ways. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This was to lead to several generations of a dysfunctional family. Imagine the rivalry that began to grow up around uh, Esau and Jacob because of the affections singly out of their parents. If you know the story, you'll know that after years of Isaac loving Esau and Rebekah loving Jacob, 
that Rebekah encouraged Jacob to trick his brother Esau into claiming the birthright that was naturally Esau's because he was the first son to be born even though they were twins. And Jacob agreed. And Rebekah and Jacob concocted a plan and they stole the birthright off Esau by tricking Esau and Jacob's father Isaac and dressing him up with hairy arms. You can read, <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob dressing up in hairy arms to pretend that he's Esau. You can read all about it in the pages of, of Genesis. And as a result of that, the rivalry between these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, reached such a pitch that Esau was quite literally ready to kill his brother Jacob. And Jacob had to flee to another land. And he went to his uncle Laban, who lived in another part of the then known world. And Rebecca continues to lie, both to Isaac and to Esau, in order to protect the son she favoured in her favouritism of uh, Jacob. Just in these few sets of relationships, each one of them now is dysfunctional. It's marred by deceit and hatred and favouritism and selfishness. And so Jacob legs it to uh, his uncle Laban in order to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. And uh, he begins to work there for his uncle Laban. And he falls in love with a young girl by the name of... No. He falls in love by the end, very close, the end of a young girl, Rachel. Rachel. And he says to Laban, I, I love Rachel, I'd like to marry Rachel. Laban says, fair deal, work for seven years. And uh, uh, he faithfully works for seven years. And just as he uh, is about to go in and be married to Rachel, Laban, the uncle, switches Rachel for the other daughter, Leah. Not so nice. Apparently, from Jacob's perspective. So he wakes up in the morning and discovers he's married the wrong girl. How does he feel right now? Seven years, wrong girl. The deceiver has now been deceived. See it following? The deceiver, Jacob deceived his brother Esau, flees from his wrath. Jacob, the deceiver, has now himself been deceived. They say that what? They say that you reap what you. So here we have Jacob himself now deceived. So he goes to Laban and he says, That was a bit of a dirty trick. I really wanted to marry Rachel. Can we sort this out? And Laban says, okay, do another seven years and, and, I'll, and I'll give you Rachel. And uh, so I don't know who's the biggest fool in all of this, uh, but he works another seven years and then he marries Rachel as well. So how does it feel now in this little, little sort of setup? He's living with the uncle who's deceived him big time. He, he married the woman he didn't really love. Well, the woman he did love had to wait and watch for seven years. Then the woman that he did love enters the marriage with the woman who really loved Jacob, the Bible says, but Jacob didn't reciprocate. And now the younger uh, sister, whom uh, Jacob does love, enters the marriage. What's going on in all of that? So imagine the tension. Imagine how Leah feels about her younger sister. Imagine how Rachel feels, knowing that she should have married Jacob first anyway. It's no surprise that they soon grow to hate each other, Leah and Rachel. 
So track back a minute ago, you've got some parents who favoured one over the other, and it's cascaded down, and you've now got grandchildren that are hating each other. And they worked out that hate, as we heard in the story, in the most awful of ways, if you like. So when children started coming along, or didn't come along, as the case might be, Rachel and Leah hated each other all the more. The destructive rivalry intensifies because Leah starts having children and Rachel can't have children. And Leah thinks, well, if I can have children for Jacob, then in the end, Jacob will love me more and he'll set aside his feelings for Rachel and he'll love me first. Where the Lord saw that Leah, this verse 31 of Genesis chapter 29, was not loved. You can read all of this just to prove I'm not making it all up. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So Leah's desperate for, <coughs> for Jacob's love. And all the more now. So what happened? Well, she then has a Another son. She then has another son. Listen to how it continues. Verse 33. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Verse 34. Again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So after four children... With the agonizing longing that her husband would love her, she is no further forward in gaining his affections. Jacob still loved Rachel. How's Leah feeling right now? How's Rachel feeling watching this go on for year after year after year? Where's the jealousy? Where's the hatred? Where's the anger? Where's the disappointment? Where's the regret? Where's the sense of self-esteem or lack of it. So Rachel can't take it anymore. So she gets so desperate that she's willing to give her servant to her husband in order that her husband might have children through her servant in order that she might in some way recover her honor and her dignity. People make bad choices when they're feeling pretty low about themselves, don't they? And so Bila is given uh, to Jacob and to be honest, he's a right plank, isn't he, in all of this? Um, and uh, uh, Bila had two children uh, from Jacob. That's how Dan and Naphtali, or Naphtali, or Naphtali, whatever you want to say, came along. And Genesis 30, verse 3 and verse 6, And he said, Here is Bila, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bila as his wife or as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He's listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Dan means judgment or I have been justified. So she gets a son through her maidservant and gives the son a name which is designed to poke kind of or to get at or to show angst towards her sister. Then she has another son called Naphtali. And that name uh, is very similar. It talks about a struggle. In other words, she's naming her children in order to be spiteful and to point out the horror of her sister 
Leah. All of this is a right, utter mess. And what's it got to do with anything? Well, before we get there, just a few things just to bring the story up to date. Leah's so incensed by all of this, she thinks, well, if Rachel can give her servant to Jacob, then I can give my servant to Jacob. Uh, Why doesn't Jacob just watch telly? Honest. (laughs) Why doesn't he just take a break? It would have been an awful lot easier. The women might be mad, but the blokes are pretty mad in all of this too. So, uh, uh, to cut a long story short, Leah, of course, couldn't be outdone, so she had some more kids. And uh, Gad and Asher, getting desperate for names by then, obviously. Gad and Asher. And uh, there's just this whole cesspit of anger, hatred, jealousy, revenge, bitterness. You name it, it's all there. Does Leah feel full of herself as a woman and honored before God? Uh Uh-uh. Does Rachel feel full of herself and honored before God? Uh Uh-uh. Does Jacob? Hardly can imagine. More, more for Leah. She did in the end become pregnant and had another son, Zebulun. And then at the end, there was a bit of light relief. She had a daughter as well. What's all this got to do with anything? What's all this got to do with us? What difference does it make in our lives? Well, we read at verse 22 of Genesis chapter 30 that then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. Joseph, there it is, Joseph. And said, may the Lord add to me another son. Was this a happy home for Joseph? What what was his family life like? What was the dynamic in the home? Totally dysfunctional, this cesspit of hatred and Anger. The troubles were not over. Eventually the whole family uh, moved away from Uncle Laban and went back to Canaan, met up with Esau, which went better than perhaps they might have uh, imagined. But there were three more tragedies. Leah's last child, I said, was Dina, a daughter. The men of Shechem, we read very brutally. Language is quite graphic, even in the Bible. Uh, raped her. Uh, Shechem, a Canaanite ruler, her brothers uh, uh, raped her. And then uh, Leah's sons tricked the brothers into being circumcised and uh, while they were still, quote, in pain, uh, killed the whole village of them as if that was going to help. And then Rachel became pregnant again. And she gave birth to Benjamin, a younger son for Joseph, but she died giving birth. And so Joseph, in this cesspit of hatred and anger and revenge and bitterness, is now left with the only one adult who was on his side. He was utterly isolated, apart from Benjamin, who was a a younger son, just a babe at the time. And Rachel, his mother, died giving birth just outside uh, the village. And then just to cap the story, as if we haven't had enough, Reuben, one of um, Jacob's sons, sleeps with Bilhah, Rachel's mistress, and the mother of two of his half-brothers, just in case you haven't kept up with that. But that wasn't good either. That was bad. Not a good idea to sleep with your half-sister. Why is all this here? Well, Genesis 37 begins our story. Verse 2 says this. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. 
his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report. I love this verse because it's packed with all kinds of stuff. And the Bible loves to say something over there, but be also saying something over here. And this verse is like that because anyone who reads the verse will go immediately, Bilhah and Zilpah, they weren't his wives. And what it brings to the fore is you read the very opening introductory verse to the life of Joseph is the whole cauldron of mess and agony and dysfunction from which Joseph came. And then it says, Joseph brought a bad report, as if that's unusual. These brothers had lined up against each other all of their lives. These brothers never had anything good to say about each other, ever. These brothers had been uh, taught, educated to hate each other because of their mother's hatred for one another. Brought a bad report. Of course he did. He'd always done that. They'd always hated each other. Their mothers were enemies. (laughs) And then verse 3 of Genesis chapter 37 as tragic as where we began. Remember where we began about 10 minutes ago? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his others. So the same trouble, a couple of generations above, the same dysfunction is now being worked out in this generation all over again. Joseph, Israel, that's Jacob, sorry, by the way. Israel was just another name for Jacob. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. How tragic is that? How tragic that that which uh, split and destroyed his family was being worked out again in a new generation. That which resulted in years of misery was again creating so much misery. I have just two thoughts as we launch into the story of Joseph this morning. The first is this, beware of repeating patterns. Beware of repeating patterns. There are good and positive and healthy and rich repeating patterns. Hold on to them, guard them, foster them, help them to grow. But there are other patterns that are destructive that are dysfunctional, that bring misery and pain and sadness and heartache. And as you think about perhaps your family environment, or you think about the generation above you or the generation below you, or you think about those uh, that are around you, place it into your context. What are the patterns, the destructive patterns, that unwittingly, almost without thinking, you might be complicit with? that you might be reinforcing, as if it's the way it always will be. Jacob was favoured. And even though it destroyed his family, he went on to favour one son within his own. What we sow, we may later reap. And we see it everywhere, don't we? We see history repeating itself. We see patterns repeating themselves. We see people in dysfunctional relationships of some kind, a a violent spouse of one another, then linking up with partners that are also violent. We see people that are struggling with particular addictions, linking up with others with particular addictions. And so history, so easily, so naturally, so effortlessly, it seems, can repeat itself. But the story of Joseph, 
is here to say it doesn't need to be that way. And what we will see in the life of Joseph is that he's able by his uh, uh, trust and faith in a God who changes situations and changes circumstances, what Joseph is able to say is that the patterns that perhaps we ourselves have inherited, we can be the ones that stand up and say, no, no more. We can be the ones that see those patterns challenged and changed and uh, a whole generation can be liberated from them because of the stance that we take. So what might be a pattern that comes into your mind? What, what might be being repeated in your home? When do you look in the mirror and think, hmm, I sound like my father, or I sound like my mother, or I look like my mother, or I look like my father? What are the things that you find yourself, you're doing, and as you think about what's gone on before, you think, actually, I'm, I'm just like that. I've absorbed that. I've inherited that. I've taken that on almost without thinking. As the folks were listening before the service uh, for us this morning, uh, well, one of the things that they reflected on and highlighted was John chapter 8 about freedom. And Jesus goes to, uh, to the Jewish people um, and talks about them as if they're slaves. And they say, well, we're not slaves. We haven't been, we, we haven't been enslaved. Uh, and Jesus is trying to highlight to them that they are slaves in ways that they do not even realize. And at the end, it says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And maybe even as I'm speaking now, the Holy Spirit would help us to see ways in which we've become enslaved that we need to break free from in the name of Jesus that perhaps we don't even see yet. I don't know about you, but sometimes you you get those eureka moments or you see something and think, gosh, I'm like that. And as we see the way these patterns have gone down the generation until Joseph unchecked, what might be a pattern that we go, no, no, no more. No more. No more. And of course it can be positive things as well, can't it? If we, if we have time for our children, whereas perhaps our parents didn't have time for us, then we, we draw a line and we set a new agenda, we set a new model. If we gather around the family meal and make it a time of togetherness and celebration, we put in place a model that uh, the next generation can follow. If we talk openly about the love that we have for God and, and live out our passion for Him in our homes and with our family, then we set a new way for a, a subsequent generation. So it might not be something we are doing that we need to stop, but it could be something that we're not yet doing that we can, knowing the power that as we influence a generation, so that influence goes way beyond us into generations further down. I suspect that, bless them, Isaac and Rebecca didn't think much about it. It just turned out that Isaac related easier to Esau and Rebekah related easier to Jacob. And so this little divide, this little wedge crept in. And over time they fostered it. And before they knew what they were doing, they were reinforcing it. And there was a, uh, a rivalry and a dysfunction before they'd even known it. Beware of repeating patterns. Secondly and finally, it calls us to believe in God's call. To believe in God's call. You see, why why does the Bible spend 
chapters on all this background stuff. So we've done several chapters in one morning. What? Well, why? Why all the detail? Why a soap opera? Why hanging all the dirty washing, the linen in public like that? Maybe it's so that you and I today know this for sure. It doesn't matter what our background. doesn't matter what our family circumstance. doesn't matter what pain and agony we've gone through. doesn't matter what tragedy, loss, bereavement we faced. doesn't matter the heartache that's gone on maybe for decades, just like it had in Joseph's story. Doesn't matter about the loneliness. Well, it does matter, but you understand what I'm saying. It's, it doesn't matter about the loneliness and the isolation that you feel. The call of God on your life is as real and as, as alive as it was on Joseph's. And of course, we lament the ways in which we wish it had been and perhaps was different. There are so many circumstances that we wish we could change. There are so many hurts we wish we could wipe away. So many ways we wish we could rewrite the story. But the story of Joseph says this, it doesn't matter what mess you might feel has surrounded you. Whether you're complicit, responsible, or simply a victim within it. It doesn't matter what the the depth of pain and dysfunction has been around you. When God calls you, you can rise out of that to be a person of great influence for his kingdom. And that means we have to very consciously and deliberately lay aside all the if-onlys. If only, then I could really serve God. If only then God would really choose me to do something special. If only then I would become a person of influence like Joseph maybe. But you see, I won't because of this. Or I can't because of that. And so it lays out all the rubbish. As if to say there is no one more unlikely on the face of the earth than Joseph to be useful to God. Because he's come from a right mess. And all the roots feeding into him humanly have been rotten and twisted and torn and painful and full of disappointment and regret and yet God says that I'm going to call him and God says that to you and me this morning and for some of us the breaking free from John chapter 8 for some of us the breaking free is to say I'm no longer going to live saying I I can't and I won't because because of that because of what I went through, because of what's hurt me, because of what's, whatever it is, because of my current circumstances, I can't. Because in the economy of God, there was this cauldron of a nightmare. And God said, I'm calling you Joseph out to be someone great in my kingdom purpose. And hey, do you know God's calling you out to be something great in his kingdom purpose? It's an amazing thing, really. You know, Paul says, doesn't he, that God doesn't take the clever people and the wise people and the people of great standing and great stature. It's always been the same. We think of Joseph as this massive icon of godliness and splendor. And maybe in God's purpose, that's what he became. But we need to know where it all began. Because at his beginning, he's no further forward than any of us. At his beginning, he was no more together than any of us. At his beginning, his, his sets of relationships around him were no better. So what does the Spirit say to you this morning about what it might be time to lay down and say, I keep saying because of this, I can't. 
uh, and the Spirit would say, actually, look at Joseph. And remember, it doesn't matter what the sadness, what the pain, what the heartache. I have a plan and a purpose. And I want to give you, as God would give Joseph, some dreams and some visions of who you will become and what you will do. Let's be quiet for a moment. So maybe the Spirit's just been whispering to you this morning. Whispering to you about something that it's time to break free from in the name of Jesus. Might be a pattern, pattern of behavior that you've inherited. Or more positively, a pattern of behavior that you want to uh, set forth for your generation and those that follow. Or it might be an idea, a word that's held you captive. I, 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 you can imagine, Joe, I, I can't possibly be useful to God. I come from this right mess. I'm lonely, isolated. I've lost my mother. I'm full of grief and shame and lament. Everyone around me hates one another. I, I can't do anything. I, I, I'm of no value. And all those circumstances and the enemy would whisper that into you. you, you you're stuck where you are. You can't move out of it. Nothing can change. You, you are where you are. That's your lot. That's the way it's going to be. And the Spirit of God this morning wants to see you in the name of Jesus break out and go, actually, if Joseph can rise in the name of Jesus, so can I. And if in your spirit in these moments you just sense God speaking to you, we'd love just to pray for you. I'm going to invite you just to stand. Just so in this moment you can be uh, physically reinforcing what you're thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm stepping forward in this. I'm going to break free from this. In the name of Jesus. So that's where you are right now. Please stand and then we'll pray. Father, we're lifting our lives to you. We love the reality that you met Joseph right in the muddle of his life. And that you had dreams and visions for Joseph way before he had any idea. Thank you for what you're whispering to us this morning. Help us in these moments as we let your spirit just work in our hearts and in our lives. Let's stand together.